Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Watching another episode of the Jew Three Project podcast. As always, I'm your host Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew Three Project, and today I'm so excited to bring you a, another special guest, Dr. Nichelle Gendry. Welcome, Dr. Gendry. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the work you do. I follow. I've been following you on social media for over a year, so I see all the uh, work you do, and I'm so appreciative for that. Um, so thank you again for taking the time out to to be with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. This is a very important conversation for us to be having right now. So thank you for making the space um, with your platform for us to have this great conversation. Awesome. I'm excited to have it. And, and we're going to talk about something that has been circulating on social media, um, the hashtag Me Too, but something that most people don't know that it was started by a Black woman as you were telling me 10 years <laughs> earlier. So um, tell us a little bit about the history of Hashtag Me Too. So um, the Hashtag Me Too was started by a black woman activist. Her name is Tarana Burke. Um, and she's an activist and she noticed it in her community about 10 years ago that there was um, there were advocacy, there was advocacy and opportunities and resources for um, a lot of things in her community, but what was missing were were resources, help, um, and connection and community for survivors of sexualized violence. So she started this movement. Um, she started this <laughs> hashtag uh, Me Too as a way to connect Black people um, who survived sexualized violence in her community. Um, what took place recently. Um, was um, in light of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein and the exposure of the rape culture in Hollywood and the film industry, an actress by the name of Alyssa Milano actually utilized that hashtag to, um, to share her story um, and hashtag me too. And I think her tweet even invited um, other people to utilize that hashtag to share their stories. And then from there, we saw this whole um, 
uprising of, of women telling their stories of sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual aggression in a variety of fields and sectors, um, which is great, which is powerful, which is a huge blow to rape culture. But what's unfortunate in that is that the name of the black woman who created it um, was erased from that um, public narrative. Um, Tarana Burke actually did an incredible interview um, on Democracy Now! And she was joined by Alicia Garza, one of the um, black women who founded Black Lives Matter. And um, they had an amazing conversation about the, the original genesis of Me Too and why Tarana Burke felt the need to start it, but also named how unfortunate it is that the labor, um, that the work of black women also uh, often gets erased um, when our work becomes popularized, uh, most often by white, white people. Um, and um, so it's really important as we're having this conversation that we, we name <laughs> um, the originator, and um, her name is Tarana Burke, say her name, and um, that we also name that this was a movement that was started to connect black people who were survivors of sexualized violence. Um, so hashtag me too. <laughs> and that's awesome. And I forgot to uh, allow you to introduce yourself at the beginning. I don't know how I skipped that. <laughs> um, so would you tell your audience, the audi our audience just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is Reverend Dr. Michelle Gidry. I'm the founder and the creator of She Preaches, which is a professional development organization for black women in ministry. I am repping the org today. She <laughs> Preaches. Um, I am a graduate of Park Atlanta University. I am a graduate of Yale Divinity School. And most recently, I'm a graduate of Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary with my Doctor of Philosophy degree in homiletics. That's amazing. I'm always excited to talk to women, black women who have their PhDs. Hopefully I'll get mine. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. You can do I'm it. trying to get motivated again after the MDiv. I'm, I'm wiped out. So I totally, understand. I totally understand. But it's it will always be worth it. It'll always be worth it to have another sister in the guild. <laughs> awesome. So um, when we talk about Me Too and the church, why is it important for us to talk about this in the church? Because many people think it's something that's going on outside the church and sure. not inside. Sure. So I think there's a number of reasons why it's important to discuss it in the church. And um, I want to start kind of at the beginning um, that Me Too, um, as I perceive it, as I understand it, um, is... Um, an effort to resist rape culture, right? Um, to expose rape culture. And when I say that term, rape culture, I want to be very, very clear that I'm not only talking about the actual act of sexual assault. It doesn't um, mean that where rape culture is, you know, um, it just means that rape is happening. It simply means that um, we are living in a context where any form of violence, any form of aggression, any for, sort of oppression against women is normalized. So rape culture is a complex web of attitudes, myths, and behaviors that normalize any kind of violence against women. 
any kind of second class citizenship against women. And so as we're talking about the church, we're talking about um, a culture of normalized oppression. Um, many of us know, uh, you know, there was that kind of um, those glory days and the days immediately following the ascension of Jesus where women had a powerful presence in um, the church prior to Constantine and prior to institutional institutionalization. But when that happened, um, the myth of women being um, less um, capable of leading and less um, worthy of, of leading and um, the myth of women being too emotional and the women, the myth of women being impure, these kinds of like purity myths um, created very clear stratifications um, for the place of women and the roles of women in the church. Fast forward generations later, um, here in the United States, um, with the birth of the historic black church, um, you know, the black church came to be in a context, it, it, it arose out of a context of, of extreme hatred. Um, think about slavery and you think about um, institutionalized slavery and you think about the place of black women and the different kinds of experiences that black women were having. It's, this is the context in which the historic black church came to be. And um, unfortunately, the black church didn't necessarily do a great job of differentiating itself in terms of gender, um, in terms of the place and the roles of black women. So we have these amazing stories of black women um, who, who, who defied the odds and black women who preached anyways and led anyways and created churches and denominations anyways. But it remains that in so many cases and so many churches, you see a number of attitudes, myths and behaviors that support the idea that women are second class citizens, right? Um, and so anytime you step into a place, whether it's a church, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your home, um, whether it's the grocery store, you know, and um, there is a culture wherein women are just not as safe, right, as men. Um, you are in a rape culture. And again, that's not to say that, you know, women are just being raped left and right. Although we should just say that that does happen in a rape culture. <laughs> um, but it's it's the way that women aren't allowed to do the same things. It's the way that women's bodies are policed. It's the way that women's attire is policed. It's the way that still in some spaces, women aren't, um, they're not allowed to say certain things without repercussion, not allowed to, you know, and so these kinds of Attitudes, myths, and behaviors that promote the idea that women are less than. And when you're in that kind of a context, when you're in that kind of a culture, it's physical violence is going to take place. That's because it's been preceded by other types of violence, ideological violence in the church, theological violence. When you have these different discursive violence, how women are talked about, how women are talked to, these all lead up. These all create the perfect storm 
for sexualized violence and sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And it happens in our churches. And that's why it needs to um, be discussed. That's why it's important. It's, I don't care if you're talking about a black church, a white church, an open and affirming church. There is not a church that I have come into contact with um, where the rape culture of the dominant society of the, of the world hasn't in some sense intoxicated the culture inside the four walls. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's important because uh, one of the things I was thinking about is the ways in which, like you were saying, women are, are talked about as if, if there is a problem sexually in the church, it's the woman's fault for the way she dressed or for tempting the man. It's never sometimes preached as men take responsibility for their own actions. Um, it's always like, well, she had done something. Um, I guess you, you go back and see that at the beginning, Adam and Eve. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, a lot of people don't talk about in that story, you know, God gave Adam the instruction, right? Not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And that was before God put Adam in that deep sleep and created Eve out of Adam's rib. But the lapse happened because Adam didn't convey that to Eve, right? Like, you look in the story, there's never a moment where Adam's like, oh, Eve, um, that, that, that tree right there is off limits. And so she's vulnerable to what happened in the garden between her and the serpent because she didn't know. And but what we see thereafter is that Adam blames her instead of taking the responsibility for, I forgot to tell her that part, God. <laughs> Wow, like, whoa, okay, wow, okay. That's how it's gonna be, Adam, okay. And we do see this kind of um, attitude of complicity and this kind of way of not taking responsibility, right, in the part of a lot of our brothers for um, their role in this culture, in the church and other otherwise, you know? Um, a huge um, component of, of rape culture is this idea of provocation, is this idea that they, they don't, they didn't, he didn't know what he was doing when he was doing it. And the flip side of that coin is victim blaming, blaming women for um, what, hap what happens to us, what happened to, to them, what happens. And there's always this, this lapse, there's this thing right in between where there's just not responsibility on the part of men for their actions. And that's a huge, um, we, we need to get in that, in that void and have exercises and constructs of accountability. And I think that would shift things really drastically. Yeah, because I'm thinking about like the Levite and the concubining judges and how he tries to get justice for her and he was a part of the, the problem. Yeah, did you not put her out on the doorstep to be raped? Like, did you not, you know? And then you want to create this crusade for justice. So not understanding the that you are sometimes a part of the problem that you're trying to solve um, is, is so problematic. Isn't that also the story where he cut her up? Like he mutilated her body and sent it out? Yes, to show yeah. how horrendous that. To show how horrendous it was. So it wasn't enough, right, that you, that she had been brutalized, gang raped all night. It wasn't enough that she was dead. 
but then you dismembered her body, right? Like, which is metaphorically a huge consequence of all of this, right? Like, even if it's not the actual act of assault, like, to experience harassment, to experience gender-biased treatment, to experience patriarchy and and that kind of violence, right? It leaves women feeling dismembered, like something's missing off of me, like something's been taken off of me. And the process of healing, and um, God, I wish I can remember, um, Stephanie Crompton, I think, um, did a workshop once that I attended, of Dr. Stephanie Crompton of McCormick Theological Seminary here in Chicago does extensive work around remembering being put back together as, 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 a, as an act of healing. And that is so important. And so, so, so important. The work of, 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 of healing, you know, and being remembered, which um, unfortunately our sister in the text did not get the experience of being because her life was not even in her own hands to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's so crucial for many to understand because those are the passages that are skipped. And I think it's, I can't remember, is it Phyllis? Like the text of terror. Text of terror. Yes. That's a really important book uh, that is, is, is helpful for this conversation. It's actually, I would say foundational because um, what Dr. Tribble conveys in that text is that we have narratives inside of our sacred texts that actually support this culture that actually support violence against women. Um, And Dr. Triple's work was really important because um, she takes us through a variety of stories. She takes us through Sarah and Hagar. She takes us through the rape of Dina um, and even the Levites concubine. And I think there might've been one more in there, but she goes through these stories and basically kind of um, she, 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 exposes the way it's not like just the story right that supports the violence it's the text itself it's how the construction of the word reflects the patriarchal values of uh of of of, of the culture um that it was redacted in and even the culture that it's utilized in and it's so critical for those of us who are faithful or who want to be faithful christians um to understand that in the same book that we find stories of of liberation and the same book that we find the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have these unspeakable horrors and these unspeakable terrors. And whether or not we preach about them from our pulpit, the stories are there and we can utilize them to expose the culture of violence that we live in. Um, They are there to be exegeted they are there to be proclaimed just like Romans 8. And how many sermons have you heard on Romans 8 in your life? <laughs> um, in my dissertation, um, I talk about how some of that can be done. Because my I, I wrote a homiletics dissertation. And so um, I, um, I write about specifically how to um, subvert rape culture in black churches. Um, and it's, I don't want to give away my, my, my content, but I do want to say that 
it must be done with extreme care and with extreme responsibility. But before that, you just have to have a little courage, you know, to to um, to do that work. And I've heard some incredible sermons from Reverend Dr. Gina Stewart. I've heard some incredible sermons from Reverend Dr. Um, Elaine Flake. Um, I even heard an amazing sermon by Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III that had to do with this. And, you know, there just there are models of this kinds of preaching on these texts of terror um, that show us that not only that it can be done, but it can be done well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's helpful. How do you think, what specific steps would you give church leaders who are, who are watching that say, I want to I wanna courageously deal with this in my church? What, what steps do you think they should take? Um, well, first things first, um, be prayerful um, because um, nine times out of ten, um, if the statistics are true, and I do believe that they do shed helpful light, um, four out of five women, black women, are survivors of some form of assault or harassment, um, which means that on any given Sunday, you're your pews are full of, of women, um, men and children who have survived some form of sexualized violence. And so you have to be really careful because triggering is real. Um, and we also have to understand um, that when you're dealing with something that's sensitive and triggers, triggering is real, it's helpful to get trigger warnings. And so um, just a, one pragmatic step would be, you know, hey, people of God, today we're going to be talking about something that's, that could be triggering and that could be um, hurtful. Um, but because we want to, uh, to um, express the good news of, of the gospel to people who've been through hell on earth, we are going to um, brave these wilds and, and talk about this today. Um, so I write about the, the usefulness of, of disclaimers um, in the pulpit um, when dealing with these kinds of texts. And then um, the next step would just be do your research, do your work, because there are so many resources out here, not only that shed light on the pervasiveness of the problem and the pervasiveness of the culture, but there are hermeneutical guides as well, um, texts that can help you to get into the meat of, of the text, the and in the heart of the text, and why it, why it is intrinsically violent. Um, but then there's also you know the temptation in so many in so many pulpits, um, you know that you know you want to make people shout right, um, and that doesn't always happen you know with this, um, but that doesn't preclude good news right, and so the good news has got to always be that this was not God's idea. It was not God's intention that you would be victimized. And God sees you, and God loves you, and God still has use and need for your voice and your life and your ministry in the kingdom of God. You know, XYZ might have discarded you, XYZ might not have listened to you, but God is here, and God is listening, and God is available, and that is, that's, God always be the good news that um, we serve an, a merciful God <laughs> um, that's that's still here and still in our midst and and um, who never intends for God's children to be realized in any kind of way. 
Um, I would also say that just on a practical kind of um, uh, a practical recommendation would just be to um, have available to people who are triggered in the in the congregation to receive care and to receive prayer and to receive even some type of counseling after the preaching moment just because you don't want to um, rip off a band-aid or scratch off a scab and then send bleeding people out into the world. And so um, that is, you know, something else that I wrote about in the dissertation. And there's probably more things in there that I wrote. There's so much more in there that I wrote about the actual construction of an anti-rape culture sermon, um, particularly in black church settings. Um, that has to do with hermeneutics, that has to do with um, gender stereotypes, that has to do with history um, and context, and um, there's so much I could say about it. But that suffice for now. <laughs> and um, I, this is conversation is, is so important to me, especially as it relates to women and children. One of my closest friends was on um, a few months ago, and he's um, he has HIV, and we were talking through um, his experience that he talked about how his interaction with the elder in the church when he was 13 years old. And uh, we talked through that. And it's just, I think it's so important because people were responding to uh, sending emails and responding to him and it was like, they couldn't believe that that happened in church. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it does happen. Um, more frequently than we care to admit. And it's so important that we have these conversations. And I don't know if we can, how we scream maybe leadership um, is important um, because, you know, some leadership is, are, are, are rapists, molesters in the church. And it's important that we-, we Womanizers. Yeah, womanizers. Yeah. Um, my my friend does a um a, sh a one woman show and in the show she talks about abuse and she did it at a, a a pastors and leaders conference and for the pastors wives and she had I think she said a third of women that were pastors wives saying that thank you for speaking on this my husband beats me and so it's a it's important to bring that up I know it's uncomfortable but it's real and there's so so many people hurting. Um, and, and we have to have these conversations. You know, I, you know, I, I want to, I want to, I want to recommend, I want to recommend um, um, a book, a book um, 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 a particular essay actually inside of Troubling in My Soul. I want to say the subtitle is Womanist Reflections on Evil and Suffering. It's edited by the great Dr. Emily Towns. Um, and in that book, there's a um, there's an essay by Frances Wood called um, "Take My Yoke Upon You," and she, in the essay, exposes this very culture, right? Um, that so many of the women that make Black Church happen, right? That <laughs> whether you're they're standing in the front or whether they're standing in the back or whether they are making meals or just giving their tithes and offerings faithfully, keeping the church afloat, um, are, are also going through these horrendous situations. Um, you know, she talks about 
clergy sexual aggression, a sexual aggression at the hands of clergy. But she also talks about the fact that so many, because so many people in our churches have the lives that we witness week in and week out at church, they go home to violence, you know, um, domestic violence. They go home to molestation. They get, they go home to sexual assault. They go home to that and, you know, um, need to have that, well, will need, need a lot of, a lot of different kinds of help, but raises the really important question of well, what is the responsibility of the church in the lives of survivors? Um, what is our responsibility to see to it that healing happens and that justice happens, right? Because that's another conversation. Um, and sometimes when we talk about justice, you know, a lot of church people want to be like, well, that's not my thing, but it should be our thing, right? Because it has to do with people. And in many cases, all, most cases, it's, it has to do with the people that we serve. And so justice, you know, justice must be a concern uh, of the church when it comes to, to, to sexualized violence. Justice on top of healing, in addition to healing, justice as well. Um, and sometimes justice means like we call out our pastors. We call out the deacons. We call out the, the Sunday school teacher who abused their power, you know? Um, and that's just very brave and courageous work in most, in most churches. So another book that I would want to recommend is called um, uh, Rape Culture and Spiritual Violence. It's by um, Gina Messina Desert. I think I'm saying her name right. But um, she talks about this, this, this paradox of the spiritual violence that takes place um, in rape culture. And she does talk about the fact that, you know, clergy are often the uh, perpetrators, which is a whole different kind of violence because people look to clergy for you know, a certain kind of leadership in their lives. And when it, they get the exact opposite of that, that's extremely disorientating. And we have a problem on our hands. And um, there are resources out there that can help us to address the problem and get justice for people who have been victimized. Yes, and it's so important because I think one of the reasons people have a hard time is because they see a person doing amazing things and helping so many people. and they can't in their minds reconcile how a person can be really helpful and thousands of people are being changed and they're giving away food and helping people, but privately they're violent um, towards their spouse or towards other people in the congregation. Um, and we see that even in Hebrews, there's people that are highlighted by God, but have some, some, some violent tendencies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, just because a person is, does a lot of good in the community doesn't mean they shouldn't be held accountable for the violence that they do privately to people. And I think that's, that's so important. I agree. What, um, what other things what, that we haven't talked about that you would like to shed light on before we um, close this conversation? Um, 
I think that it's um, we've had a great conversation. I don't I don't want to add anything more to it. Um, but I just I I, I recognize that um, any time a woman speaks out about um, anything, anytime she speaks out about um, any way she's experienced um, some form of of, of, of mistreatment, um, it's, it's going to be very risky and it's going to be even costly to her. Um, and so I would just encourage us that when we see that take place, when we see a woman take on that bravery and to take on that courage um, to support her, you know, to um, surround her and let her know, like, you're not alone. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, when you speak out, sometimes it can feel even more isolating than, you know, the initial act of, of, of abuse. Um, because so many people have also been abused, but just haven't spoken up, or there are those people who know about what's going on and they haven't spoken up and their silence is their complicity and it allows the violence to continue to happen. And so anytime a woman does speak up um it's just such a courageous thing to do and when that happens in your midst and when that happens in your community it's important to make sure that sister knows that she's not alone um and to stand with her publicly and to um let her know like you're not fighting this by yourself and anything that i can do to support you is what i'm going to do um and I think that that togetherness and that unity, particularly amongst women, that sisterhood, um, has saved my life in so many different scenarios in ministry and otherwise. And I think that it's going to be that sisterhood and that togetherness and that unity, even across gender lines. I mean, we are all looking for a few good men, you know? who are willing to say, like, I know this is happening in my in my church, in my workplace, in my whatever, and I'm willing to stand up to it myself. You know, we need that kind of solidarity if we're going to shift this culture and change the narrative of the violence in our churches and beyond. Amen. Um, I know you have a book out um, as well. Uh, before we end, I want you to tell our audience how about your book and how they can get it and also how they can connect with you on social media. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Lisa. Um, so see if I have any copies around me. I'm sitting in my own office with no books, but the, <laughs> the book is called um, Curating a World, Sermonic Words from a Young Woman Who Preaches. And it's a book of sermons um, from my first 10 years of ordained ministry. Um, the sermons have to do with everything from social justice um, to gender to um, what I call liberating words is, you know, for when you find yourself in a situation where you know you can do better and it's time to move on. Um, dead in marriages, bad work situations, or even if it's like antiquated ways of thinking or, or being within yourself and it's time to grow up and glow up. Um, there's some sermons in there about that as well. And the book is um, available on my blog, <laughs> revnichelle.com. And I'm on all my social media at Nichelle G. So that's N-E-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G. And I definitely look forward 
to connecting um, with you more, Lisa, and supporting your work. I think that this is awesome what you're doing. Um, and also, you know, supporting the work of your audience who really just want to make this justice thing happen. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.